mental illness I have is a little more rare. It's called chronic suicidality or chronic suicidal ideation, which means for me and people in my tribe, the idea of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. And when I say small, a couple of years my car broke down, I had three thoughts unbidden. Get it fixed, buy a new one, or I could just kill myself. Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm Petra Belzebor, and this is the place to discuss tips, tricks, and hacks to build your resilience through your worst rock bottoms and get you to a place of success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life, professionals, individuals who've been through their own adversity, and allow them to share their authentic and real life stories, opinions, and ideas about how to utilize our worst rock bottoms and allow them to catapult us into success. Welcome to the show. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. We have got Mr. Frank King. That's who we've got. Uh, and I'm very excited about this because he is a mental health comedian. Yes, you heard that correctly. Now, how in the world, I mean, we're going to have to go back a little bit, but how in the sure. world does that even fit together? The ideas of depression and suicide and comedy. Well, uh, and by the way, that's always the elephant in the room when I speak, when I keynote. So I always open up with, let's answer the question in everybody's mind. A comedian doing, yeah. Yeah. A uh, couple of things. One, a uh, comedian's job isn't always has been since the time of the court jester to speak truth to power on behalf of the powerless. So uh, I believe I speak truth to the power of mental illness on behalf of those powerless in its grip. I believe where there's humor, there's hope. Where there's laughter, there is life. Nobody dies laughing. And depression, suicide run in my family. It's called generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. Wow. I'll spare you the details. It's in my first TED Talk called A Matter of Laugh, L-A-U-G-H or Death. If you want to know the details, they're gruesome. Brace yourself. Trigger alert. Yeah. Uh, and I myself came close enough to suicide in 2010 after we declared bankruptcy at the height of a recession in the U.S. that I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. And I have yeah, oh yeah. I have two mental illnesses. One's called major depressive disorder better known as depression. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's not the blues. It's not being sad. It's something that, that lasts, for me, it lasts two, three days. Some people last two weeks and it recurs over and over and over. And it's generally not situational. Uh, I've been most depressed at some of the best times in my life. I was always worried what's going to happen if I get this depressed and I'm in bankruptcy. Well, I found out. Uh, the other mental illness I have is a little more rare. It's called chronic suicidality or chronic suicidal ideation, which means for me and people in my tribe, the idea of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. And when I say small, a couple of years my car broke down, I had three thoughts unbidden. Get it fixed, buy a new one, or I could just kill myself. That's always option C for pretty much any problem for me and people like me. I've got a book I'm working on called uh, Life in the Exit Row, starting the conversation on suicide. Because that's where I sit, window seat, exit row, on the plane. I could check out at any time. So that's that's why I... <laughs> so, I mean, I've been a well, I've been a comedian since 84, 85, doing stand-up. I did, my wife and I went on the road back in December of 85, and we were on the road without a home for 2,629 nights in a row, just comedy club to comedy club to comedy club for seven years. 
And I always wanted to be a speaker, but to be a speaker, you have to have something, you know, to teach people. You have to have learning objectives, takeaways, leave behinds. And I could never figure out what in the world I had to teach anybody. And then after I came so close to pulling the trigger, uh, by the way, spoiler alert, I didn't pull the trigger. Uh, yes. Yes. A friend of mine came up to me after a keynote I did. He'd never heard me say that. And he said, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, could you try to sound a little less disappointed? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so after that, I realized because of my family history, because of my history, everybody in my family is on, is on uh, one psychotropic or another. Uh, there are more nuts in my family than a 25-pound bag of squirrel food. And I realized that I did have something to say. And I, I bought a book by a woman named Judy Carter. She also wrote the Comedy Bible, and she's updating it right now. The, the Comedy Bible and New Testament's coming out this month. She wrote a book called The Message of You. So if you have a listener who's thinking about becoming a speaker, look up Judy Carter, The Message of You, and the subtitle is, is the best subtitle I've ever, most specific subtitle I've ever seen, Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. Hello? So about halfway through Judy's book, I realized I do have something to say. And so I put my first TEDx together, the outline, using Judy's book. And then I bought a book called Talk Like Ted, The Nine Things That Should Be in Every Good TED Talk. And I, I adjusted the Judy version to the TED book version, applied for a TEDx talk in Vancouver, BC, and I got it, my first one. And I went up, and that's when I came out as depressed and suicidal. Nobody knew. My family didn't know. My friends didn't know. My wife didn't know. I came out on stage at that TEDx on video as depressed and suicidal. Had you planned that in your preparation? Because obviously TEDx, with the time frame, you plan, people plan quite oh, yeah. right? You want to get it right. But did yeah, I, you I, plan to come yeah. out in that way? Yeah, I did on purpose because as a comedian, I needed to rebrand, uh, as Judy would say, rebrand from a funny speaker to a speaker who is funny. Because all the speaker bureaus and people who'd book me thought of me as a comedian. Well, the TEDx shows me talking about something yeah yeah deadly serious pardon the pun so that i mean i planned on that was the beginning of my rebranding and i've done three talks since then i'm getting ready to do one in durango colorado tedx it's a little more adult a little more fun it's uh, mental health and the orgasm treat your depression single-handedly now i would come to that Yes. Uh, well, you know, I knew some TEDx committee somewhere. I, I, I sent that into 13 TEDx committees, got turned down 12 times on number 13. They call and they go, this is fabulous. They probably thought it was too risque. They're very conservative out there where you guys are, aren't they? Yes, but the committee, that particular committee said, you know, Frank, TEDx is not just about ideas worth spreading. It's about controversy. And in my TEDx, I say, I'm about to talk, to, talk about something that 55% of Americans will not talk about. And by the way, my opening line is, this iPhone, my second favorite handheld device. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, so, somebody finally bought, bought it, but it's, it's a mental health talk. It talks about you know everything, all the palliative effects, mental and physical of an orgasm. So that sounds, um, so I wanna pause you. I wanna pause you, because I'm excited about the work that you're, you're doing, and I'm especially excited about what makes us into the people that use our adversity or our challenges or our life experience as a message or as content, whether it's through comedy or through speaking, whatever that looks like. So there's generational mental illness and, and um, different diagnoses within your family. What was yep. it like growing up? Like, did you, I, I know you said that you, you, you found a family member when you were really young. 
but was there an openness to talk about mental illness in your family or was it just like the, the elephant in the room or what was that like? Well, uh, uh, funny you should ask. Uh, the, after we found my great aunt, and again, you have to watch the TED Talk. I don't want to trigger anybody on your podcast. Uh, apparently, I screamed for days. And then I must have walled it off in my brain somewhere. And yeah, you were very young, sure. My, yeah, my mom asked me about it, I think 16, 17 years old, and I had no conscious memory of it. I think she was just fishing to see if I remember, but didn't want to give me too much information. So the family created an, an urban myth, an urban legend, that when I found, we found my great aunt, it was very serene. She was sitting there with her hands folded in prayer, looking serene. So in 2012, I told my cousin, Parker, mm. who's 10 years older than I, so he would have been 14. I told him that urban legend, and he... <laughs> Had a different version, I'm guessing. Yeah. As my mother would say, in his infinite wisdom, he decided to tell me the truth. And it was... Her, and when, when he told me what happened, whatever was holding back that memory in my brain, you know, the wall just fell away. And I'm like, oh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that was that was 2012, 2013, as I was beginning to, to rebrand, or in my mind, rebrand myself and think about speaking on suicide prevention. So now the, the good news is my generation, mine, my sisters, my cousins, and the next generation, because my generation, we're all out about our mental illness. The nieces and nephews have no problem saying, look, I think I may be depressed or I'm having a panic attack or there's no stigma, there's no, you know, it's it's not taboo to talk about it out loud in our family okay but so, it had to it wasn't always that way no now, how old were you when you started recognizing distressing signs or symptoms or things that you were questioning or worried about i was depressed in college but i didn't know it was depression my girlfriend at the time who became my first wife and my first ex-wife uh we should have never gotten married but you know what they say opposite to track she was pregnant i wasn't um Been there. the <laughs> the uh the, she was going to another school all the way across the country. So I thought I was just lovesick. I uh, got married uh, and we shouldn't have because she's a wonderful woman. We had nothing in common. She didn't really want to be married to a comedian and I wanted to, to do nothing but be a comedian. So picture this, I'm married and we both have these wildly different goals for the marriage. Uh, I'm selling insurance, which is her idea of what I should be doing, but I, I hated it with a passion. Great business, but I hated it. Yeah. And I was not going to open mic nights, you know, doing comedy, which I knew in my heart I should be doing. So the subject of my third TED Talk is Suicide, the Secret of My Success, Dead Man Talking. I realized that if I stayed married, stayed in insurance, I was going to kill myself. And I'm about 23, 24 years old at this point. I'm going to kill myself sooner rather than later, which led me to the next thought, which was, wait a minute. I could divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy. If it works, great. If it doesn't, hell, I can still kill myself. So I had nothing, literally nothing to lose by, by doing comedy. And so I did. And I, I can't tell you, the reason I did the TEDx was about suicide, the secret of my success. I've met a goodly number of entertainers, entrepreneurs, who have had the very same thought process. They're living a life. They know they don't belong there. They know where they belong, but they're depressed and suicidal. They figure if I stick with this, I'm going to die. Well, what the heck? Might as well bail out on this and try that. And if it doesn't work. Yeah. So it's funny you say that because I've had the same experience. So I was 25, um, two kids, 
deeply depressed and literally made this secret deal in my brain that um, I could kill myself in a year if my yeah. life didn't change. And I ended up taking loads of risks and testing loads of ideas out because I was like, what have I got to lose? I can just end it all in a year, right? I had this arbitrary deadline for whatever sure. reason. Um, and so that's interesting that this, this, for me, the concept of adversity to advantage is that some of us who have actually faced the brink of death in such an extreme way are actually, if we channel that into living our best lives, kind of from that bizarre, we've got nothing left to lose thing, can actually be more successful or driven or push ourselves to achieve incredible things. Yes, and, uh, and I've heard this from more than one person, that if it were not for my chronic suicidality, if I were not always willing to open the exit road door on the plane, I would have killed myself a long time ago. Uh, because that's always on the table. You know, you can, you, can, you can suffer a lot knowing that the pain is finite if you want it to be. So it's a sense of control in a way. Yeah, because the reason I didn't pull the trigger that morning, and this is in the TEDx, was that I had a million-dollar life insurance policy. But in this particular policy, having sold insurance, I had read the policy, and I knew there was a two-year suicide clause. And so I didn't know how long it had the policy. So I called up my insurance agent, and, you know, people with mental illness tend to be good actors. I was chit-chatting away. And I go offhandedly, hey, Graham, how long have I had that policy? I don't know. I'll check. And you can hear him clacking on the keys. He comes back on the phone and he goes, uh, 22 months and no, don't do it. Well, he's a life insurance agent. He's had this, he had this call a half a dozen times. And I think two or three of those times he had delivered a check to the widow or the widower, you know, the benefit check. Yeah. 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 He said that, cause I, I talked to him later, uh, right before my Ted talk posted, cause I mentioned him in that first Ted talk. He said, Frank, I knew I should say something when I realized what you were, you were just, you were asking for permission to kill yourself. He said, I said a quick prayer and I thought, please, dear Lord, let me say something. The right thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, Graham, from my training in suicide prevention, it's not always about saying the right thing. It's about saying something. And, and you said the right thing. So I had, I had two months. Somebody goes, two months to live? No, two months until I could die. But because I knew at two months and a day, I could pull the trigger, that allowed me to, you know, go through those two months. And by the time the day came, the bankruptcy gone through, the phone calls had stopped, I'd broken the surface, taken a deep breath with the depression, and things slowly but surely, and I still have suicidal thoughts, you know, and I've been suicidal sure. in the meantime, but, sure. but that's, but that's when- why I didn't. So, so that led you to your, I guess, your crisis moment, one of your, your catalyst moments, I guess. Um, but just take us back again. So, so you end up uh, splitting up with your first wife. At what point did you get diagnosed with these things and actually be able to face up to the fact that you had two mental illnesses? Well, I, I just between you and me <laughs> and all the people listening to your podcast, yes, of course. I've, I've never been diagnosed. I've never seen a psychologist, a, a psychiatrist, or a therapist. Somebody said to me, then how do you know you're suicidal? I said, you know the, <laughs> Well, that's a crazy question. <laughs> yeah, the, the aftertaste of, of the gun oil was actually a big tip-off. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you put a gun in your mouth, people just don't do that. What would this taste like? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, 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 because of my family history, and I recognized, I recognized that I was depressed at times in my life when things were great. So that, that's not the way it's supposed to work. So I've never had an official diagnosis. But um, mid-90s, it, 
I've been in San Diego, walked the dog on Coronado Beach, the best off-leash dog park in the world right by the Hotel Dell. I mean, beautiful day. Dog and I had a great time. I'm going back over the Coronado Bridge back to San Diego, and I was just wretchedly depressed. So I started counting my blessings as I'm going up the hill. This is 95, 96. And I got to the top of the bridge, finished counting my blessings, still wanted to jump. And I thought, you know, I think I need a little something, something. So I found a supplement over the counter named Sam E. You can buy it at Costco or, you know, the drugstore. It's good on mild depression. It's also good for your liver and your joints. And so I took 400 milligrams of that every morning until I turned 60. And it, that took the edge off. At 60, my wife goes, look, honey, you're 60. For God's sake, ask the doctor, your general practitioner. Tell him your story. And so he prescribed me something. And Wellbutrin, I'm not advertising Wellbutrin, but Wellbutrin. And I, my wife noticed the difference in two weeks, but didn't say anything. She wanted to see how I reacted. At three weeks, I had this thought for the first time since I was in high school. And bear in mind, I've got a good life. Lovely wife, you know, we live in a nice place, great career. But I had this thought for the first time unbidden since I was in high school. I like my life. Whoa. Whew. Yeah, it came up like those thoughts of suicide bubble up without any push. Yeah, like a surprise. Yeah. Yeah, my second thought was, why did I wait so long to take the antidepressant? Wow. Wow, wow. Now, wow. it doesn't cure it. Nope. But it does make my, it shortened my cycle when I began to go down from three days to two. And it spread out the number of times in a year, let's say, that I have that sort of spiral downward. So it's, it's, a, one, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. You know, it's mm. never going away. Right. I, I used to say I battle depression. That's that's inaccurate because battle implies you can win. I live with depression. I can't beat it. I can lose to it, but I can't beat it. You manage it in some way. Yep. And then, yeah, for our listeners, everybody's different, right? So sometimes an antidepressant uh, really can help either through a period of time to get you yep. some resources, or sometimes it is that chemical imbalance and it can support you in some way. So here's my theory. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, and I don't just depend on the pharmacology. I believe, and, you know, everybody has a different feeling on pharmacology. Some people think big pharma is just out to sell pills and, you know, that they're, they're making all these syndromes up. Um, I take a holistic approach. Um, yeah. Diet, exercise, good night's sleep, meditation, medication, and, of course, Absolutely. the, the I love subject. That you of, love that. Yeah, it's like taking yeah. responsibility for our whole lifestyle. And yeah. if pharma helps, then then great. But I don't think it's useful to just go the pharmacology route and then and think I don't have to do anything else to yeah. sort of invest in my physical health and my mental health, right? That's what lots of people do. They go, the doctor told me to take this, so I'm just going to watch Netflix all day and see if I feel any better. And it yeah, I have, uh, I have heart issues. I've uh, Thanks to my father, I had a bad heart valve, which I've had replaced twice. And thanks to my mother, who had the cholesterol of an average deep fat fryer, um, I've had two aortic valve replacements, double bypass, a heart attack, and three stents. Uh, again, I take a holistic approach, diet, exercise, good night's sleep. I take my medication, but I'm, I'm, I am my cardiologist poster boy because it's terribly frustrating for him because people come in, they get the double, triple bypass, and they go right back to doing smoking, drinking, eating bacon, because yeah. they figure they can get fixed, you know, come back in, you know, like a plumber and fix the pipes again. So, so there's two there's two avenues there's more there's two off the top of my head that I'm curious about one is 
why comedy? So what was the love of comedy, which people might think that of you struggling on uh, underneath, maybe people couldn't notice, but comedy is risk-taking, it's standing in front of a crowd, it's laughing, it's, it's humor, it's happiness, it's all, you know, all that sort of thing. What was the driver for you from such a young age? Well, two things. Uh, a friend of mine has an expression, another comedian friend of mine, there are two, two kinds of comics, diagnosed, undiagnosed. Huh. Uh, we even have, we have, we have a podcast called the Suicide Prevention Punchline instead of Lifeline. Like because it. so many comedians, entertainers, creative people, more so than the average person, die yeah. by suicide. But for me, people say to me, tell me about yourself. I say, well, I'm a comedian. No, no, no. Not what you do, who you are. Well, at the risk of being redundant, I'm a comedian. <laughs> from the fourth grade. I told my first joke in the fourth grade, and I decided on, on the spot I, I was going to do comedy for a living at some point in time. And in high school, I was the first person ever to do comedy stand-up at the Senior Talent Show. And I was going to be a comedian then, but my mom was very big on education. Her family's big on education. So she said to me, son, you can do anything you want after you graduate from college. You can be a goat herder if you want, but you're going to be a goat herder with a degree. So I went to UNC Chapel Hill. I got a couple of degrees. My lovely first wife and I moved to San Diego, which was the beginning of the end of my insurance career because there was a comedy store there with an open mic night. Oh, I see. Opportunity. Yeah, and I, I did five minutes on stage. Halfway through, I thought, I heard this in my head. I'm home. Did I'm going to do this for a living. I have no idea how, but this is going to be my living. And it has been for 34 years. So, but yeah. I, driver. Not everyone has that kind of that confidence or knowledge at their home or this is the thing they should be doing yeah there there have been several times in my life when i knew i was in the right lane um and my whole family's funny my, my mom was funny my, my sister's very funny not comedy store funny but just witty sure when i when i <laughs> i did a, another tedx for on mental with benefits the evolutionary advantages of mental illness because everybody i meet with mental illness i swear to goodness has some kind of special ability superpower if you yeah, will well exactly i agree uh, my, i said to my sister superpower and she goes superpower we're not the x-men we're the xanax men uh because <laughs> my sister's that funny good one <laughs> yeah but I've, I've always been i've always been it's just the way my my brain processes information it just it it's it's i feel blessed in that I knew from a very early age that I wanted to be a comedian. When I got on stage, that confirmed it. The only, the only other times I've had that unbidden, I'm home, I took a voiceover class uh, to, to, to voice commercials and, and audio books and whatever. And I'm sitting in the back of the class, I'm listening to the guy who's in the booth, another student reading a McDonald's commercial. And he finished reading the McDonald's commercial, and I thought, and I'd never taken a class before, and I thought to myself, Man, it's McDonald's. Put a smile in your voice. And the teacher then says to the guy, hey, man, it's McDonald's. Put a smile in your voice. And I thought, oh, 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 <laughs> oh God. Oh, uh, I'm home. I'm in the right place. Because my teacher would tell you, a good voice, good pipes will get you a job. A critical ear, if you can hear the difference between a commercial with a smile and a commercial without a smile on the radio, that's a career. So I knew that and I just got done voicing a, a business book for somebody and I'll I'll probably voice it. I mean I voice that was my first one. I was delighted to do it, but I, I imagine I'll voice um some more books as time goes. And I voice radio commercials. Uh so, but, so I imagine so you know that this is what you what you want to do, but I imagine that it wasn't just smooth sailing the whole way, right? 
There's oh, no. Right? Rejection, failures, kickbacks. I'm sure you weren't this funny at 25, right? No, no. I, 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 I hesitate to think how, how I would um, be revulsed by, by if somebody said, here's an, here's an audio tape of your first set on, you know. Yeah. I mean, they were laughing, but, you know. But did uh, no. those, like, trigger you into your depression or, or make you doubt that you were on the right path? No, you know, because um, I didn't know until I was on a podcast recently with a guy who has um, imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. or you think you're going to be found out, yes. that you're not really as talented, you don't really deserve the PhD, or I guess in, in, in terms of comedy, you're not that funny. Yes. And I'm listening to him talk about how he got his PhD, and he was happy for a day, and the next day he wakes up, thinks somebody's going to discover that I don't deserve this, they're going to take it away from me. And I said to him, I think I have reverse imposter disorder because I believe I am funny and, and I'm just waiting for the rest of the world to figure that out. I love that. I love that. Yeah, so just like, I, I th- yeah, I think I actually think I'm more talented than maybe perhaps I really am. I just don't know why people haven't recognized that yet. Their problem, not yours. Yeah. But th- there are comedians who suffer those things. Yeah. Uh, there are comedians. Um, you often hear somebody say, they saw a comedian on stage. They somehow met them afterwards or someplace else, and they were they were aloof and they were they were serious and they weren't very friendly and and but people will tell you and this some of my my most uh, cherished moments are when somebody comes. I just did a I, I work for Holland America. I do cruises about twelve weeks a year, and somebody came up to me on the ship after I performed and we're chatting away and they stop and they go, "Oh my God, you are the same guy." here that you were there <laughs> because not everyone is there can be a pressure can't, can't there to yes be like, uh, they're performing yes yeah yeah and you're like this is me and I get to be me on stage yes and and um, I've been fired from three cruise lines uh, not anything I did didn't get drunk or whatever I was just ran into the wrong cruise director at the wrong time they took on bridge and, and I got fired um and so I had one line left and I said to my wife, look, I'm not going to put any more emotional energy into make, you know, working really hard to stay employed with the cruise line. I'm just going to go up there and do my show because I had bad shows, good shows got fired. And so my show got better because I just, I was relaxed and somebody came up to me after the, one of the shows we're, we're in the theater, I'm packing up. It's just him and me, me and him and me. And, uh, he said to me, how is it possible you are that comfortable up there? <laughs> I looked around, make sure nobody's listening. I said, uh, you really want to know? He goes, yeah. He said, how do you get, how do you get that comfortable up there? I looked around. I said, um, it's because I don't give a shit. And it's, it's amazing because I'm relaxed, so they relax. And yeah. I do what's called, I build myself as comedy and conversation. I bring the house lights halfway up. I say to the audience, do a couple of minutes of comedy, get them comfortable. I go, look, it's called comedy and conversation for a reason. If you've got a question, raise your hand or just shout it out. If you don't understand a joke, raise your hand. I'll back up. We'll do it again. Uh, and the first night I did that, sure enough, hand in the front row. Did they? Really? Yeah. I said, you didn't get it? She goes, I didn't get it. I said, okay. Here's the setup. <laughs> I did the setup again. I go, you got that? She goes, I got that. I said, did the punchline. She starts laughing. Of course, everybody else busts up laughing. Yeah. But th- I like that that interplay because I'll be in the middle of something. I'm off on a tangent. I'll forget where I started. I go, what was I talking about? And somebody will yell out 
the Waffle House or whatever. And oh, that's right. So they feel like they can, you know what I mean? It's endearing. So, They're on your side. They want you to do well. Like you've got the crowd with you. Yeah, it's, it's, I think of it as a, uh, as a giant cocktail party and I just happen to have the floor. And that. so that's the feel I'm after. So yeah, I'm, I'm much more comfortable on stage oftentimes than I am in real life. Right, and not giving a shit really helps. Um, yeah. I want to go to, uh, and it helps in all aspects of life. Yes, it does. Just don't give a shit and you'll be good. That's, I think, no. the bottom line of pretty much everything. Just be yourself. Um, because the mental illness thing, there's so much shame and people hiding who they are, oh. right? Oh, which Lord. Is, which makes it worse in my mind. Yes, uh, and that's what the... Um, that's what I get paid to do when I speak. Almost every client I've ever had has said to me, Frank, we want you to come in and start the conversation. Because what I've discovered is that even though hardly anyone talks about mental illness and suicide, the mere mention of the words depression and suicide out loud elicits the most amazing responses. People, some, some of whom I've just met. Can I tell you a cruise boat story? Please do. Um, it's, it's a few weeks before my TEDx. And I'm in the Lido buffet and I can't find a seat. And so I look over, there's a woman at a table for two in an empty chair. So I point, she nods, I sit. She looks up, she goes, hey, are you the comedian? I said, hey, did you enjoy the show? She goes, I really enjoyed the show. I said, then I'm the comedian. She starts laughing. She goes, what would you have said if I told you I hated the show? They tell me I look a lot like him. She asked me, which most people do if they've got a question, is cruise comedy all you do? I said, no, I do about 12 weeks a year. I said, I'm a public speaker, and if you don't mind me bragging a little bit, you've got to tell somebody. I just nailed down a TEDx talk. She goes, I love the TED Talks. What's the topic? Okay. Whoa. <laughs> I, know, I, I had this conversation many times. I thought I knew what was coming, so I said to her, depression and suicide started to count down in my head. Three, two, one, and she goes, I tried to kill myself twice. We have just met. Yes, she goes, exactly. First, first time in college, not particularly serious. Second time, far more serious. She said, I graduated college. I graduated medical school. Had the knowledge, had the equipment. She said, I had the IV started in my ankle. Suicide cocktail in the one hand, syringe in the other, getting ready to load it up, and the phone rings. Now she's conflicted. Pick up the phone. Well, I better, she thought, because might be somebody who worry come over and interrupt. Picks up the phone, her 13-year-old son. She goes, I don't know if he heard something in my voice or had a premonition, but he said, Mom, don't do anything. So she said, I didn't. I didn't give up on the idea of suicide, but I decided not to do it that day because I knew he would always feel guilty. Wasn't there something he could say or do, said or done? Yeah. And by the way, there are things um, to stop me from dying by suicide. And there are things because eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. So... I said to her, well, how old is he now? She says, 21. I said, does he know his phone call saved your life? And she said, no. How do you start that conversation? And I thought, TEDx. <laughs> and that that yeah. became the overarching theme of my TEDx and my, and, and my career. My book is really going to be um, finding, let's see, turning pain into purpose, starting the conversation on suicide, because that's what they want and I do. And it's, it, if I can just begin it, it gives people permission to give voice without recrimination. Absolutely. They can say things out loud they, they would not feel comfortable saying out loud previously. Okay, so it feels right to go there right now. So first of all, I want the listeners to notice that you keep, you keep saying die by suicide rather than commit suicide. And I think people need to hear that. 
uh, because so many people still say commit suicide as if it is a crime, which it, it was, you know, when, however many years ago. Um, and there's this subtle nuance in the language of saying die by suicide, which is not a crime. It's just somebody's pain and an act, a willful act that they do. Uh, so I want to point, I wanted to highlight that. Um, let's just go there. What can people say? You said it's better to say something than nothing, even if there's so much fear about saying the wrong thing, as if there's this idea that if you say the wrong thing, the person's going to definitely go ahead and do it, right? Yes. But what is the right thing to do if there is the right thing to do in that moment? Well, and it is it is a legitimate fear. I mean, it's sure. you know you know the, you you feel like you're holding their life in your hands, and what if I say the wrong thing? What if I um, what I uh, tell people is, uh, is it okay if we go over some of the signs of depression and then signs of suicide, then what to say? A um, couple, three signs that somebody might be depressed is they have trouble getting up in the morning, they rally in the afternoon, they let, let their personal hygiene go, they eat too much, can't eat, sleep too much, can't sleep. So the question comes up, what do you say? Well, let's talk about what you don't say. Uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Turn that frown upside down. Have you tried fish oil? I get that a lot. My uncle, he went on fish oil and gave up all his antidepressants. I'm happy for him. Uh, what you do say for somebody you believe is depressed is I'm here for you and mean it. I know you're not lazy, crazy, or self-absorbed. I know that depression is a mental illness. The good news is with time and treatment, things will get better. I will take the time. I will help you get the treatment and mean it. And here's the tough one. You need to ask them. You have to ask them. And if you can't ask them, find somebody you can are you having thoughts of suicide? So be there's explicit, old, say the words. Flat out. Now there's an old urban legend or an urban legend that you should never mention the S word suicide in front of somebody who's depressed. And as a comedian, I love the reasoning because it might give them the idea. <laughs> Depression, what a great idea. Why didn't I think yeah. of that? Yeah. <laughs> Trust me, it's crossed their mind. Okay, now signs that they may be depressed. I'm sorry, they may be suicidal. Uh, talking about death and dying um, and writing about it, or it appears as a theme in their artwork. I've got a friend whose book came out today. It's about her son, and he was a songwriter, and he would never let his mom see the lyrics. He would take his notebook to the bathroom and make sure she wasn't able to see it when he was in the bathroom. And after he passed away, she looked at the lyrics of his songs, and they were all about suicide. So, um, you know, in their artwork, in their writing, their whatever, um, giving away prized possessions. I want to make sure they go to the people you want them to go to. I met a guy at a conference in New Orleans a couple of weeks ago. He stayed after. Every time I do a keynote, I do a general Q&A, answer questions. Then I tell them, look, if you got a question you don't want to ask in front of everybody, like, hey, I'm crazy. Can you help me? I'll stay after. And we'll do it individually. And usually there's one to half a dozen people have an individual question. Well, he had gotten so close to suicide, he'd begun to give his possessions away to people he wanted them to go to. So they'd be there when he passed away. Um, obviously, gathering the means, whether it's stockpiling medication or buying a gun and ammunition. Here's a counterintuitive one. It's they're depressed for, seemed like ever. And then for no apparent reason, they're happy. Happy, happy, happy. It may be because they've chosen time, place, method, and they know the pain is finite, yeah. which is a common misconception among neuronormal or neurotypical people. When Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade died by suicide, my friends, my family, I got text, text messages, Facebook messages, phone calls, um, 
they, uh, they all wanted to know why somebody or those two somebodies with everything to live for would want to kill themselves. My friends and family got together, I'm sure, and said, well, Frank's suicidal. He'll know. Uh, <laughs> and what I told them was, chances are neither one of those people wanted to die. I didn't want to die. I just wanted to end the pain. Yeah. And the way I describe it, I put this into my TED Talk, um, Suicide Secret of My Success, and the impact, I was surprised at the impact of this story. Um, having a mental illness, again, neuronormal people, I don't think, realize how much energy, courage it takes some days to get out of the bed, paste on a smile, put one foot in front of the other, and walk around like nothing is wrong. There's a big push in this country on resilience training. Tra tra teach people to be more resilient. Here's the problem with that. The people that I know are the most resilient people already are my mentally ill friends who right. have thoughts. Yeah. Otherwise, they wouldn't be here. Yeah. So anyway, do you, do you know the Greek character Sisyphus? He was a fellow that offended the gods, you know, Zeus and those guys, somehow. And so they sentenced him to roll a rock up a hill every day. And when you get the rock near the top of the hill, it would roll back down. Yeah. Next day, I had to push it up. Okay. So I tell normal people, neuronormal, that yeah. having a mental illness is like that. Every morning you wake up, there's a rock in a hill. Some days the rock is small and the hill's not so steep. Some days the rock is a boulder and the hill is Kilimanjaro. But every day, there's a rock and a hill. And, and Anthony Bourdain, Kate Spade, I woke up one morning and we just couldn't move the rock. So That's such a powerful... <laughs> image. Such a and that's my job is to make sure when I get done that they still have, you know, what they need to move the rock. Everywhere. Put the rock up the hill. Um, yep. So ask the question for sure. Um, I think people forget oh, yeah. that it's okay to ask the question, right? Not just okay. And if you can't ask it, find somebody to ask it. Now, if they say uh, yes, I am having your next question, the protocol goes like this. Um, do you have a plan? If they have a plan, well, tell me what is your plan? If the plan is detailed, like the gentleman I met in New Orleans, I mean, he had picked out a car in the parking lot, he knew he had a gun, he was going to go out at lunch, he's already beginning to give away his possessions, get his affairs in order. If, if they have a plan that's detailed, that's very serious. You need to get them on the phone with whatever in England or in Great Britain is the suicide prevention yeah. punchline, a punchline, lifeline. Or nowadays, yeah. And in the U.S. now, there's a text line for uh, young people because young people are more forthcoming in text than they are verbally on the phone. Um, and if, if they won't pick up the phone, you pick up the phone and you and the volunteer on the other end of the phone will do their best to talk the phone into the hand of the person who is thinking about suicide. Um, and if, by the way, people always ask, when do you call the cops? If they're an immediate, immediate danger to themselves or other people, you got to call the cops. Now, they're probably going to get locked down for at least three days without shoestrings and a belt, but they'll be alive. The if the plan is not particularly detailed, and this is a, this next two questions are, are of my own making, and are going going into a, a TED talk sometime soon. Uh, if the plan is not particularly specific, I would say, okay, well then, tell me this: Are you going to kill yourself? And in my case, I go, no. Why would I kill myself? <laughs> I have these thoughts all the time. That's just the way I live. Yeah. Uh, and the next question, I believe, most important is if you're not going to kill yourself tell me why 
make them give voice. My grandchildren, my children, my animals, my wife, whatever it is. Because if you said to me, are you going to kill yourself? Why would I kill myself? Well, tell me why not. Here's why not. It's, I just discovered this in January this year. After all my talks, usually somebody comes up with an issue. Oftentimes they come up and they've got chronic suicidality and don't know it has a name. I was at a dental convention. You know, a woman comes up. Everybody else is leaving the room. She's walking toward me. I know she's crying. So she gets close to me and I keep a smile on my face and nobody on the other side of the room would know there's an issue. She gets close enough and she can't speak. She's weeping so hard she cannot open her mouth. I said, you have chronic suicidality, don't you? She nods. I go, you didn't know it had a name. Nod. You thought you were a freak. Nod. I said, I bet you've been driving down the highway, see a bridge abutment up ahead, think, you know, if I turn the wheel just a little, boom, we're done. She nods. I said, do you have a therapist? Nod. Well, when you get back home, set an appointment and tell them what you learned. And for goodness sakes, tell them you Googled it. Don't tell them you learned it from a comedian. And I won't, I won't take you seriously. A week later, I got an email. She goes, Frank, I think I was at the dental convention simply to meet you. You changed my life. And I cannot say that about many people. So one night after a college suicide prevention presentation, I'm standing outside Billings, Montana, starting to snow. It's semi-darkness, dusk. Kid's gone to get the truck to take me back to the hotel. So I picture this. I'm out there, semi-darkness, snowing, thinking about how all these people's lives would have been different had they not heard me speak. And it hit me. I'm that character, George Bailey, in the movie It's a Wonderful Life. I've been shown by an angel, perhaps the one that kept me from pulling the trigger, what these people's lives would be like if I were not there to speak. So I can't kill myself because I would take all those people with me. I'm stuck here. <laughs> so that would be my story about why. Well, that and my mother, um, my mom and dad were both gay. Uh, they met in the 40s, crazy about one another, both wanted to have a family, couldn't adopt. So they, you know, did it the old-fashioned way. My mother carried two to term that didn't make it. Oh, Nine months. Yeah, and somehow I found the strength to try again. So I tell myself that I cannot, because of the courage and how hard she worked to bring me here, I cannot check out early. It would just be disrespectful, you know, it would dishonor her efforts. So that's another reason why I can't kill myself. Those are um, beautiful reasons and such a great example of turning the worst rock bottom, the worst adversity or pain into a very clear purpose. Um, I'm curious, you've, you've, you've managed your, your mental health well now. I'm sure it goes up and down, but it seems oh, yeah. like with some medication as well as exercise, nutrition, all the things that you do, you're able to manage it as well as have purpose within it, which is um, extremely powerful. But what got you to that point? Because I always say it isn't a one-size-fits-all. So, so yes, there are some foundational you know, baselines, which is you know, nutrition and looking after your body is going to help your mind. Yeah. Connection with people. So I'd say being honest um, allows us to look after. But how did you learn what it was that you needed to do to, to manage your mental health now? Oh, it was a, an evolution. Right. In my, I, when I first... Uh, realized I was struggling, I started with that supplement. 
and then I, because of my heart issues, I tended to exercise frequently, which is good for your mental health. And then um, kind of carbohydrate sensitive, so I'm on the keto diet, but that came along years later. I do alternative day fasting, um, and this is going to sound kind of funny, but I, I, I'm, I did my first bodybuilding contest last October at 62. It was on my bucket list, but I didn't want to start doing that until I turned 60 when you get the master's category, because by 60, pretty much everybody else had given up. So there's a lot less competition. So that for me is a couple things. One, it gives me a reason to go to the gym besides just exercising. It gives me a way to achieve something outside what I do for a living, you know, an achievement beyond in a whole different category. Um, I'm horribly vain. So, it's, you know, I can see the results in the mirror every morning. But so it's been like kind of an evolution, you know, and uh, it's like supplement, exercise. Oh, wait, I probably should change my diet. I, I'll go ahead and do that, that bucket list item. I'll bodybuild. I'll, you know, I'll, and I also, something I came to mo most recently was you need to surround yourself with people with whom you can be honest about your mental state. Because, you know, when people ask, how you doing? You go, fine. But I have my, the guy, my workout partner knows that I live with depression, thoughts of suicide. So when he says to me, how you doing? I go, I'm wretchedly depressed. When he goes, what does that look like? I said, well, do you remember when you're 18 and a young man, every other thought you have was about sex? He goes, oh, yeah. Then he goes, so what's your every other thought about? I said, being in bed watching Netflix. <laughs> and they're going back to bed, pulling the covers up. Just staying. Check so, out a little bit. You need to, you need to, you need to have a, a team of people that aren't going to judge, aren't going to try to fix you. I tell people in my, in my keynote, look, here's the deal. If you're suicidal, call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. If you're mentally ill and suicidal and you're just having a really bad day, call a crazy person. I put my yeah. cell phone number up on the screen because uh, you call me, I'm not going to be judgmental. I'm not going to tell you what you should be doing. I'm just going to listen. And as, as a friend of mine says, I'm just going to co-sign your bullshit, the stuff you're going through. Because that's because they we understand. And I've had people call that number. I pick up the phone, they're like, oh my God, this really is your cell number. Why would I do that to somebody who's depressed? You know, why would I give out a fake number to somebody who's depressed? Of course, it's my cell phone. So. Yeah, um, I think that's powerful because uh, I'm sober for 12 years and I, I don't go to meetings or do any of that anymore. But I know that at the beginning, I had to learn to just share the mess with somebody who wasn't going to judge and who I just to release the shame of it, you know, and who wasn't going to fix. Yeah. I still had to find my own way, but I had to be radically open and honest. Um, we're coming to the end of our time, but I'd love to know where people can find you. We're obviously, we'll obviously link in some of those TEDx talks into the, the show notes, but if you want to book sure. your speaking or comedy or the range of things that you do, uh, where can they find you? If they go, just type in the Google box, the mental health comedian, you can do .com. That'll take you to the website, but my Facebook page, my Instagram, it's all the mental health comedian. So it should pop up more, more, more organic listings than you really care to see. It sounds like it, the mental health comedian. Um, and I don't know if this is the wrong question now, but I wanted to end on what are you excited about for the future? Excited might be the wrong word. Um, no. <laughs> what are you looking forward to? What excites you? Well, the the fifth the fifth the fifth TEDx is a little funnier and a little more out there. Probably going to get a few more views because you know it talks about sex. 
Um, the people ask me, this spe is speaking therapeutic for me? And it is very therapeutic. It's like you said, uh, sharing my, and Judy Carter says, you need to share your messes and your stresses, then people want to hear your successes. So by sharing it over and over and over and helping people by virtue of my experience is, you know, that, that saving lives, you know, it's, it's, it's theoretically, I, everywhere I go, I, I have the ability that, you know, the, or the possibility that we, we have saved somebody's life. And I mean, does it get, <laughs> is there any bigger difference you can make? Which makes you a true superhero. <laughs> the Xanax men. <laughs> um, I love this so much. Thank you, Frank, so much for your time and really showing us a tangible example of how to turn your adversity or your pain into your advantage or your purpose. Uh, we look forward to the book as well. Can, do you know when it's out or are you in the early stages? Well, I would say really early because all I've got is the title and the subtitle. Um, Good start. I'll tell you what, the, <laughs> the, um, I'm doing a book with two female co-authors. It's a book on men's mental health because... One of the co-authors who's a suicide prevention therapist went to the bookstore, couldn't find anything on men's mental health. And so the three of us got together. It's an anthology, stories of men by men for men, because men tend to take advice from men. Absolutely. And if you'd like, I would connect you. Each one has a pain to purpose story. The young woman's suicide therapist lost a, a friend when she was a teenager. The woman who's a psychologist uh, lost her brother to suicide. She's a loss survivor. So uh, both have turned their pain into purpose. And then, of course, this book will be, you know, sort of a culmination of uh, actually we supposed to be one book. It came out of 800 pages because it's got clinical information and resources. And so it's going to be four books, but it's on men's mental fitness. So I, if you like, I'll hook you up with those ladies. They make great interviews and they each have turned their pain into purpose. Outstanding. Yeah. And do let us know when, when the, the books come out. Um, thank you. Uh, I'm hoping October we're this close. Oh, October's around the corner. Yeah, it is October. What? It is Yeah, we are. <laughs> November. Did I say October? November. Um, I mean, we, we got, uh, yeah, we got a couple of other, you know, like uh, illustrations to be done, but the book is written. The first one's written. We just need to, you know, put the finishing touches on it. So, yeah, it's a, it's called The Guts, Grit, and the Grind, a men's mental mechanical manual. So useful, and I'm so pleased that you're a man's voice in the space because male suicide is still higher. I was at a construction conference this morning, and they were saying two men a day die in the UK, um, and the UK and, is involved, but it's a high percentage in that industry. Yeah, in the US, that's the number one at-risk occupation is yeah. construction, and and it's an eight out of ten people who die in the US every year are men. Yeah. So it's it's epidemic. We need help. Times need to change. Um, looking forward to your book. Thank you so much, Frank. Thank uh, you. Have a great day. Uh, good luck with everything. I appreciate your story. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right. Take care. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Please do subscribe and review on iTunes. Every comment makes a difference. We really appreciate hearing from you. And please do get in touch through PetraBelzebor.com if you're interested in any training, coaching, therapy, or just to join the community and get more information on ways that you can build your own resilience. Until next time.